Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad and we're on an exciting journey together. And that's the journey from product manager to product master. And one of the skills you need as a product master is customer market research. We explored this earlier with Jerry Katz in episode 071. And it was an episode several listeners really appreciated. And I've invited Gary back to share more of his expert experience with market research, specifically in discussing market research mistakes that product managers too often make. And these include confusing qualitative and quantitative research, talking to the wrong customers, asking customers what they want, not separating needs from solutions to needs, translating customer speak, customer vernacular into company speak, and hearing only what you want to hear. You'll find the written summary of the discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 163. Before we get to the discussion, I want to tell you about a resource I created for you, the top 10 tools and insights from the first 100 plus interviews. I pulled out some of the most important practices product managers and innovators need to be doing from the discussions I've had on this podcast over the last three years. If you're on the path from product manager to product master with me, you should have this guide. You'll find it in the same place all the interviews are, and that's theeverydayinnovator.com. Now the interview's next. There's a little audio distortion at times, but nothing that gets in the way of you learning about market research. Enjoy the discussion with Jerry. Jerry, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator once again. You are now a two-time guest. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Is it like SNL where you have a five-timer club? <laughs> Maybe in a few years we'll work on that. You know, Something to shoot for. I had yeah. to get you in the running because you are a very popular guest talking about market research. And I had the pleasure of seeing you a few weeks ago at the annual PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association Conference. And there you gave a very interesting talk about mistakes that we might make regarding market research, right? That was it, yep. And it was kind of you to join me now to talk through some of those. You shared several mistakes there. I think in our time together, we won't get through all of them, but we're going to hit on some that are pretty important. If you're ready, I'll just dive in and ask you about the first one, since I had the list from the conference. One is confusing qualitative research with quantitative research. Tell us about that mistake. Sure. Uh, Let me sort of say as a setup, though, uh, you know, I am a professional market researcher. <laughs> that, that feels like an AA uh, declaration. <laughs> here. But um, uh, there are certain kinds of market research where I think you can't really do it yourself. You need to rely on a professional. But there are other kinds of research where we really do encourage our clients with a little bit of training to go ahead and do it themselves. And uh, unfortunately, without that little bit of training, we find that people uh, make a lot of um, what I'm what I'm calling here rookie mistakes, not because they're stupid, just because they don't really understand the particulars of the field. Mm-hmm. And this is really one of the first ones. They they um, uh, many times we we encounter a client who comes to us and said, "Well, we did some market research of our own. Here's what we did," and they hand us a questionnaire but it's filled with what market researchers call open-ended questions, meaning they require a text type of a written response rather than a numerical response. And, uh, you know, the rules are 
Uh, There are two kinds of market research in the world. There's qualitative, which is always about words and feelings and and, uh, um, uh, things that need to be said Mm -hmm. versus quantitative research where you might be rating something on a 10-point scale or rank ordering something or something like that. And it's important not to confuse the two. Uh, if if, If your questionnaire, most quantitative questionnaires, in fact, are filled with a few uh, um, a few open-ended questions where the respondent can type a few sentences. But if your entire questionnaire is open-ended questions like that, you ought to treat it as qualitative research, meaning you do it as a conversation. Uh-huh. Why? Because it gives you the ability to clarify, to ask follow-on probing questions. Uh, you'll find that if your whole questionnaire is... Uh, open-ended questions like that, you're going to find that there are a lot of things unanswered that you wish you could ask that follow-on question. And uh, so I think the important thing is understand if what you're going to be doing is asking questions that require a verbal uh, response, you're best off to do it either face-to-face or on the telephone, but treat it as qualitative market research. Uh If what you're trying to do is measure numerical things, importance ratings or attitude ratings, then that can be done as a questionnaire. So I think it's just important to keep in mind that those are two kinds of research and you ought to use the appropriate tool. Right. And not confuse them. And there's some other things that we confuse along with that at times, like if we're going to do interviews, how many insights do we really need? How many people do we need to talk to versus if we're going to do quantitative statistical, reliable information, you know, how many people do we need to talk to? When we talked last time, we, t- we talked about that, you know, the classic study that uh, Abby Griffin had done in the paper about if we're doing interviews, this qualitative research to gain new insights, it's actually a pretty small number of people that we have to encounter, right? Yeah, they, they conclude that 20 to 30 interviews is usually quite adequate mm-hmm. for qualitative research, Whereas if you're doing quantitative research and want to be able to test for statistical differences and inferences, then then you have to worry about the laws of statistics. And it's best to have, you know, 75, 100, 300, uh, as many as you can within a reasonable budget. And at this PDMA conference we were at, talking about sample sizes here, I found it really interesting. Uh, Sarah Robb O'Hagan, who I was not familiar with before, she led the turnaround at Gatorade. She said that the turnaround was really based on discussions with 12 high school athletes, and that formulated the new marketing strategy that uh, led to Gatorade doing well again. So uh, some, we don't need a lot of people to get new insights from. It's important to understand what we're trying to accomplish with the research and what the right tool is, qualitative or quantitative. Correct. How about another mistake that uh, we might make as market researchers? Well, another one that I talked about is... Uh, um, Who's the customer? Who do you need to talk to? And um, my experience is that companies make the mistake of defining that way too narrowly. I I have some clients where their definition of the customer is only the end user and others where it's only the direct customer that, you know, maybe the procurement people who they sell to. And if you think about it from voice of the customer, voice of the customer perspective, those are all customers. And there are lots of people in between. In in most of the categories we deal with, you really need to talk to an end user. You need to talk to all kinds of influencers, sometimes a financial decision maker, 
um, sometimes people within the value chain, within the uh, the distribution chain. And uh, the the I, I can recall a case where um, one of my colleagues was doing a study with a financial services company. Their product was mutual funds. And for them, the customer was only the broker who was their direct customer and who really was their sales force, who sold their mutual fund. A few years later, he dealt with another company who also sold mutual funds. They only worried about the end, the end investor. So they only talked to people who bought their fund. Now, I'm sorry, but I defy you to tell me why one of those is important and the other one isn't important. They're both customers. And if you're trying to do new product development, you're really making a mistake if you don't talk to all of them. We, you know, we always say, talk to the users and the choosers and everyone in between. I like that phrase, the, the users and the choosers and everyone in between. Yeah. And sometimes I think we get, the example you gave was really good that, especially in thinking about the B2B kind of sell, sometimes we're just from the beginning focused on the wrong customer to start with, not really the right person to, or the right group to start with. And we miss the opportunities for who else is really involved in that decision and how to add value to them. I just did an interview. Uh, it was a really interesting panel discussion. One of the guys on it was with Caterpillar Trimble. So these are the guys creating GPS navigation and automation uh, sensor systems for Caterpillar, large machinery. They were focused on how, how do we improve a problem our dealers are having? So if we, we make life a little bit better for our dealers, they can make life a little bit better for the end customer thinking who is in that customer chain. So good. Don't define the customer too narrowly. So for us product managers, which are wanting to learn more about market research, what is another mistake that we should be avoiding? Okay. Here's one that we run into all the time in voice of the customer research. What will happen inevitably is someone will stand up and say, okay, let's go out and talk to our customers and ask them what they want. Now, there are two big mistakes in that phrase. The first one is, what customers do they actually go to? Well, I think because it's the path of least resistance, they, first of all, only go to their own customers. And secondly, it's a very fine subset of those customers. They, they tend to go only to their biggest and best customers. Why? Because they're easy. Someone will stand up and say, oh, let's go talk to Joe. He loves us. He'll be glad to talk to us. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, you probably talk to Joe all the time. That's why he is one of your biggest and best customers. you got a great relationship. You're satisfying his or her needs beautifully. And so you don't learn a lot that's new. So I think another big mistake is you got to talk to some kind of a balanced sample of people, both your own customers and your competitors' customers, your non-customers, your ex-customers. I find you learn a lot more from people who aren't happy with what you have now than people who are happy with it. So rule number one is uh, you gotta, you can't just go to the biggest and best customers. Big mistake. The second part uh, that's a problem here is uh, what I call the great irony in the field of voice of the customer. And that is, uh, if you want to understand customer wants and needs, the worst way to understand them is to ask the customer what they want and what they need. Why is that? Well, I find that kind of direct questioning almost always backfires. Because when you say, tell me what you want, tell me what you need, the customer 
thinks they're supposed to describe the exact features that they want that will satisfy their needs. Unfortunately, most customers aren't that creative. So all they do is play back features that already exist in the marketplace. And if that's what you create in your new product, unfortunately, you're going to end up with a Me Too product that offers nothing new, and they're not going to buy it, even though that's exactly what they told you they wanted. Don't ask them what they need. The antidote to that is get them to tell you stories from their own experience. What was it they were trying to get done? Uh, Clay Christensen and Tony Ulwick used the term jobs to be done. What is it they're trying to get done? What's making it hard or easy for them to get it done? Have them tell you stories about when it was hard or when it was easy to get that done. And you'll do far better at identifying real needs and not get into a discussion of features that are already out there. The two parts that stand out that you shared was the talking to the wrong customer, right? Uh, in the sense of, you know, if we're trying to expand the market where we haven't been before, our existing customers probably aren't going to help us with that. Talk to the people that are actually in that market. If we're trying to figure out why customers are leaving us, obviously talking to the customers leaving us would provide useful insights. I often think that's just a great place to start in the first place. You know, if, if we have people that did not choose our solution that we can go talk to and find out why was that? What, what a great, good wealth of information right there. And Most customers will be very glad to tell you why they left. Yeah, yeah, they have no skin in the game. It's easy, right? Yeah. And when yeah. you go talk to your big customer that loves you, you have a relationship there. They're, they're not as likely to talk about the things they might be a little unhappy with because of the relationship. It's just it's yeah. different and awkward. I, I refer to that as going to talk to the usual suspects. Yeah, it's like asking mom, what, hey, mom, what do you think about this new product I made? Well, what do you expect your mom to say? Well said. That's good. Okay. And don't ask the direct question what they want, but get them to talk about their experience, what problems they're trying to solve, what they've, how they've approached that in the past. Okay. Excellent. So good information on customers, good mistakes to avoid. I'm sure we have some more to talk about here. Yeah. The, the last one I talked about where, we're, where I said that um, customers feel that they're supposed to describe the solution to you, the feature they want. And that's really probably the biggest mistake we see made in do-it-yourself voice of the customer uh, in terms of these kinds of rookie mistakes is what I call confusing needs with solutions to needs. Those are two entirely different things. And the, the, the idea is don't confuse the two. There's the famous quote from Henry Ford, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Well, that's a classic case of confusing the need with the solution to need to the need. The need is to go faster. Horse happened to be the current solution. It had pretty much been pushed to its logical uh, uh, limits, and he came up with a better solution. Okay, so if if you if you focus the discussion on features and solutions rather than needs, you're you're headed in the wrong direction. Understand the need. It's then your job to come up with a better solution. It's not the customer's job. They're not engineers. They're not creative. Their, their only job is with good questioning to articulate needs. It's your job to come up with the next, the, the thing that's better than a horse. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. 
This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to the everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. The everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. If you were trying to understand, you know, so if you were on Henry Ford's market research team trying to understand what they wanted next in terms of, you know, the, the next version of a car, since you're doing cars, what kind of market research would you do to, to do to uncover those needs? Would you be doing interviews, asking questions? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and it, I, I don't even think I'd get that much into the numerical things. Like I don't think I'd ask them, "Well, how fast do you want to go?" If I asked that, I'd want to say, "Well, why? What's the problem with the limit of a horse right now? What is it that you want to accomplish that the fastest horses can't accomplish?" Uh, again, it's, it's verbal, it's not numerical, and it's filled with why questions. Elaborate on that. Why would, you know, why do you feel that way? Why would this be better than that? Those kinds of questions. Again, asking what they want or need and separating those two things. And, and the general issue that you talked to before about when we ask the direct question, you know, none of us want to look stupid. When we're asked a question, we will try to come up with an answer in response to that question, yeah. which may be very misleading, right? And like you said, we might end up with the Me Too product and not really be meeting their actual needs, but going down the path that, that really the customer didn't want to look dumb, so they shared something with us, but might not be very insightful. Yeah, exactly. One of my colleagues used to, uh, uh, his example was you're talking about a computer system and the customer says, well, it's got to come with a 600 dot per inch printer. Okay. And you write down 600 dot per inch printer. Well, that's been the standard for 20 years now. Right. That's, that's what we know. There's other technologies besides dot matrix printing and why 600, you know, it, it was 300 20 years ago. You know, if you say, well, what, what would that do for you? Why a 600 dot per inch printer? You might get the customer to say something like, well, you know, I do a lot of projection on PowerPoint, and I hate those little jaggies on the diagonal there. I need crisp, clear images. Well, that's the need, crisp, clear images, not, uh, or, you know, or free from, uh, you know, little jaggy lines or something like that. It isn't 600 dot per inch printer just happens to be the current technology. Good examples. Customers will speak from their experience and their knowledge. Right. So another mistake that we might make here as uh, fledgling market researchers. All right, here's another one that comes directly out of Abby Griffin's research in the famous Voice of the Customer paper. Uh, what she observed in virtually every industry she looked at was that um, people would take the words the customer used to describe something 
and somehow translate it into some kind of company speak or industry speak that was just kind of more comfortable to them. And her observation was every time you do that, every time you take the customer words and translate them into something that's more comfortable, you risk losing some of the, some of the meaning of what they're saying. And so her, her caution was try to keep the customer vernacular as much as possible. And the example I always quote, which was, is to this day hysterical in my view, is uh, a study we did in the airline industry where uh, customer after customer was asked about the process of getting on and off the plane. And they all describe it the same way. You feel like you're being herded like cattle. Well, one of the people from the airline recorded the need as follows. She wrote, orderly implaining and deplaning of passengers. Got that? Orderly implaning and deplaning of passengers. It doesn't have the, quite the emotional impact. No. Exactly. And in fact, not only does it lose the emotion, it changes, it literally reverses the need. Because if what the airline is trying to achieve is orderly implaning and deplaning of passengers, that is exactly what makes the customers feel like they're being herded like cattle. Okay. Yep. So, uh, you know, she, adv- Abby advocates, keep the customer words. You know, we always have needs like, you know, hassle-free something or other. That's the way people talk. And if you're trying to carry it forward into quantitative research or innovation activities or brainstorming, it's best to hear it exactly the way the customer said it instead of twisting it into some kind of uh, vernacular that's just kind of, you know, more cool for our industry, what I like to call TLAs or three-letter acronyms. Every industry has them, and it's a huge problem. Keep the language of the customers as part of the actual research results and share that language with others. In practice, doing this, sometimes still people will hear something and like in that example, the airline, you know, I don't, I don't like thinking about our passengers as a cattle, you know, I'm not going to use that. And they kind of just can discount some of the things that we hear verbatim. What are some ways to just help our teams that aren't involved directly with the market research? Is it, you know, recording the actual discussions and sharing that, uh, getting customers on video and bringing that, that back? We always suggest that when we're working with a cross-functional team or a product development team, the closer they are to the research, the better. If they could be in the room or behind a one-way mirror, that's the best. Second best might be seeing a video. Third, listening to a recording or reading a transcript. But the closer you get to that data, the better you're going to understand it. And while researchers try very hard to convey it honestly, it's still a little bit secondhand. So firsthand is always a little better. Yeah, those firsthand insights, and I may have shared this example with you before, that quite some time ago, it was a HP team, Hewlett-Packard, that had a printer that they were improving, and the product manager on it had done some market research and um, and did a good job, had some good insights, and the engineers completely discounted it, Yeah, was not going to respond to any of that. In this case, what she ended up doing was she set up a table in a shopping mall with the printer and got the engineers to come hang out with her in the shopping mall and have customers that had experience with that printer just talk about their experiences with it and got the engineers to make some of the changes that the customers really needed. Yeah, you know, that's a great segue to the last, uh, uh, to the last rookie mistake that uh, I wanted to talk about in this, um, uh, in this interview. Uh, human beings are funny, <laughs> 
okay? I, I don't entirely understand the psychology behind this, but uh, we all go into research with our view of the world in the back of our mind. We already go in with our beliefs. And I think it's only human when we hear customers what we'd really love to hear is confirmation that our view of the world was right. We'd love to be able to, to say to ourselves, you see, I really understood it all along. That means that we listen through filters. And I found you'll hear what you want to hear. So, you know, if, if you think that uh, the, the sky is uh, um, uh, eggshell blue and the other guy thinks it's ocean blue, you want to hear someone say it's eggshell blue. And uh, people have a funny way of twisting what the customer said to fit their view of the world. Not because we're bad people, but because I think this is normal human psychology. And uh, it, it takes a kind of courage to be able to say, you know, maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe I had to pay attention to what this customer is saying here, even though it contradicts my view of the world. And what I've always said is, being a good researcher requires intellectual honesty with yourself. Uh, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've watched clients try to do their own concept test where they show, you know, a couple of ideas to customers and their attitude is, don't you love it? And, you know, the customer, you know, if you think A is better than B and C and the customer says C is better than A and B, you're, you have a tendency to want to twist it. Well, they didn't really understand this or... You know, if they really understood it, see, they would have really liked, hey, I was right all along. It's really tough. But I think that kind of intellectual honesty with yourself is critical to doing good market research. And it's so easy to miss that. Absolutely. We all bring biases to you know any situation. And we want to hear what we expect to hear, right? And in this case, I think a lot of that is, as product managers and, and maybe engineers in general, we tend to do this fall in love with the solution instead of falling in love with the problem. And wow, but look at look at this amazing thing that that we've built. Don't you love it too? Yeah. Let's fall in love with the problem and figure out the right solution for it. And when we don't have the right solution, we move on to another one. Well said. Jerry, thank you so much for sharing some of those mistakes that as product managers that are wanting to do some of our own market research that we might run into and some good tips for avoiding them. And as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote. And I asked you to share one with us. What do you have for us? Okay. Well, one of the, um, let's say, risks of in the world of market research is uh, you finish presenting results to a client and the client's response is, well, we already knew that. Uh, and I call that kind of the ultimate punch in the gut for market researchers. And you hear it all the time. Well, let me tell you a funny little story about one time. Uh, and, and by the way, the reason that that comes up is, first of all, many times you do know a lot of, if, if, you, if you're a good student within your category, you do know a lot of what is presented there. You, you sure as hell ought to know a lot about it. Uh, even in a great VOC study, I, most of my clients will, you know, 90% of those needs were already something they were aware of, maybe with a little different twist here and there. It's the 10% that you didn't know that's probably uh, where the big insights are. Uh, but here's my, here's my little story. And, and this literally happened in the first year of my career back in the early 1970s. Uh, I was with two of my colleagues. I was wet behind the ears and we were sitting with a 
absolutely wonderful, colorful client at Miles Laboratories. I think it's now owned by Bayer. But they were the makers of Alka-Seltzer and one-a-day vitamins. And uh, the product manager we were having lunch with was a one, I wish I knew where he is, a fellow named Tom Hatch. Uh, and uh, he, had engaged, he had hired us to do a perceptual mapping study of the analgesic industry. And uh, we're having lunch with him before we start the study. And somehow he just starts drawing on a napkin the way he thought the perceptual map was going to turn out. And he says, you know, here are the axes, and I put this brand here, and Tylenol goes there, and Excedrin goes there, and so on. I don't know why, but when we finished lunch, I just grabbed that napkin, and I put it in my folder. Completely forgot that I had it, okay? We went off and did the study. We come back and present the results. And Tom said, you see, it turned out exactly the way I predicted. And then I remembered that I had that napkin and I took it out. You know what? It turned out nothing like what he had predicted. But it all looks so logical after the fact that the client's reaction is, yeah, sure, that makes sense. We knew that already. My reaction is, no, a lot of times you don't know it. Or if you did, as one of my colleagues, John Burns, like to say, if you already knew that, why haven't you acted on it already? What what have you been waiting for if you already knew that? So, uh, again, it's, it's the curse for market researchers. We already knew that, to which I always say, mm, I'm not sure you did. Yeah, and as you shared, if, even if you did, why haven't you taken action? So if you knew that and we provided confirmation for you, that was an important service. Uh, absolutely. And, and if you learned even that 10% you didn't know, that could be the difference between a big success and a me too or a failure. Yeah, because that 10% is usually less obvious and contains many more valuable insights for innovation. Yeah. Jerry, always a pleasure to talk with you about market research. You have such a wealth of experience and knowledge. How can listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? I would certainly invite you to come to our website, which is uh, www.ams-insights.com. Uh, if you have a question for me directly, my email address is gcats, all one word, at ams-inc.com. So excellent. So again, main website for insights is ams-insight.com? Insights.com. Insights.com. Thank you very much, Jerry. Appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks for inviting me again. And uh, let's go on to that five timers club. Okay. You, you got it. <laughs> Take care. All right. T- thanks, Chad. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Jerry at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 163. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.